Welcome to Short Story Today, where we celebrate short stories and the authors who write them. My name is John DeSavino, and I'll be your host. This week, we celebrate Portland, Oregon author Evan Morgan Williams. Evan has published over 50 stories in such magazines as Witness, Antioch Review, The Kenyan Review, Alaska Quarterly Review, and Ziziva. He has three collections in print, Thorn, Canyons, and Stories of the New West. Today I'll be reading his story, A House Call, which was first published in Ars Medica. But first, let's listen to my interview with Evan, which took place on December 1st of last year. I'd like to welcome Evan Morgan Williams to the podcast. How are you today, Evan? I'm doing really well. Thank you very much for having me. You are in Oregon. That is correct. Portland, Oregon. I want to have you tell us a little bit about your background, your personal history, you know, as much as you feel comfortable. I mean, you can go back as far as you want. <laughs> I was born in a little cabin. And <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I wasn't born in a little cabin, but um, uh, I, I thought if, I thought if you were going to ask about this, I might start the story backwards because I was just like literally yesterday, I was in a coffee shop and uh, I looked around the coffee shop. And I thought, I am so old. Everybody in the <laughs> coffee shop was somebody in their 20s, and they had their beautiful Doc Martens with the <laughs> um, pat the patent leather Doc Martens on. And I just thought, man, oh, they all had their laptops open too. So I like to think, oh, they're all writing. They're all writing like I want to be writing. And I'm not quite there with coffee shops yet just because of COVID. So I was going to get my little order to go, and I was going to go sit in my car. Nice. Uh, but then there was another guy in there in his 50s, and I saw him engage in the most egregious mansplaining that I've ever, <laughs> I ever, I, I never thought I would see this. And, and the poor woman that he was mansplaining to, she literally at a point was like, I think your mocha is ready. So, uh, and so I thought, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. I just said, I, I got to get out of here. I'm going to go to my car. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, it was like that Talking Heads song sort of, you know, in your beautiful home, in your beautiful life, how did I get here? How well, you, that's I a very good David Byrne that you're doing there. Evan. Yeah. It sounded just like him. How did I get here? I'm 58 years old and I'm surrounded by all these other people. Well, anyway, I can tell you that a lot of my life has involved kind of leaving where I am. I mean, I grew up in a, my, a perfectly normal middle-class family, except it was kind of a little bit more of a epic John Steinbecky middle-class family. I, mm. I had two brothers with some significant disabilities and, and my dad grew up, my dad was one of those depression era families on a farm and the crops failed and his sister got polio and his older brother was killed in World War II. I mean, I feel like it's wow. a Steinbeck novel, you know, mm. um, my mom was, in, uh, she was a preacher's daughter. They lived in China. My mom's older sister died. My mom barely survived, you know, it's got that kind of feeling to it, you know, and then you add on to it just a little bit of a kind of a Calvinistic, you know, life is bad. Life is to be endured in suffering. And I felt like I needed to get away from that. And, and I did. I was more of a solitary person. I like hiking and camping, mountain climbing. And so I went to college. I went to college in Colorado. And while I was in Colorado, I had my first massive epiphany about reading and writing. I, I read two books by Barry Lopez. I read them in one night, mm. Desert Notes and River Notes that just opened my eyes like, oh my gosh, this is what I want to be doing. Mm. 
And so after college, I um, stayed in the Rockies. I got a job in the park service. I worked at Glacier Park. I worked at Custer Battlefield. I lived on the Crow Indian Reservation for two years. Um, this part of my life is where a significant number of my stories come from. And then I went to University of Montana in Missoula and got an MFA degree. And I worked for 29 years teaching in middle school here in Portland. I've never really written based on experiences out of the classroom. Uh, but you can even think about, well, does my teaching inform or give me time to do my writing? And this is a significant question because there's a lot more people graduating from MFA programs than there are teaching positions in MFA programs. Mm -hmm. uh, so here I am in a public school. I may have been in, having more stable income than a lot of writers I know, but I've also was taxed, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally in terms of having time and creative energy to do the writing. Mm. Uh, but anyway, in those last 29 years, I've rebuilt my writing community here in Portland. I have an amazing writing group. I've retired just last year, but um, as, as a teacher, you get a certain amount of money, a little stipend each year for, um, for professional development. And I've been able to use some of that also for writing. I, I was able to use that one year to go to the Tin House uh, writing conference right nice. here in Portland. Mm. Yeah. And um, in some sort of distant tangential way, maybe that relates to my teaching professional development. But, but yeah, you know, I would say, you know, getting back to that coffee shop, those 20 somethings there typing away on their laptops. My dream as a teacher would be that some former student of mine would, would at the, um, at the prize conference, that would, um, that would be like the full circle for my teaching career. What grades were you teaching again? I was teaching eighth grade, eighth mm. grade language arts. Wow. Middle school. That's a tough age. Eighth grade is like when, when the stuff hits the fan for kids, right? right? <laughs> so that right. it's, uh, but it's also a delightful age when kids are just filled with discovery. Mm. I've also taught some high school and a lot of times high school kids have already made a decision whether they're going to like you or not, or whether they're going to be into your messaging or not. And if they've decided they're in the not column, it's already too late. But the middle school, people are very plastic, dynamic and fluid. And um, you can really tap into all of that. I was just curious, you mentioned that you're very tied into the writing community in Portland there. Uh, tell me a little bit about that writing community and how active that is, because not every city has that kind of an infrastructure for writers. Yeah, it's. I'm really glad you asked about it, because I even wrote out some notes about this, because it's so mm. important. Um, the writing community is one of these ironic things, because writing in many ways is this deeply solitary act. And yet it's also an amazing communal act because your best writing is going to be coming often from revision and revision is going to be coming from critique that you do with a writing group or in a class. And um, so it's almost, I call it like breathing. You're in and out, inhale, exhale. Some of it's solitary, some of it's communal. And here in Portland, there's quite a few resources for that because you know, there's a couple colleges here in Portland and outside of the colleges, we have different, for lack of a better word, writing centers and small presses. There's quite a few small presses here in Portland, like Tin House mm -hmm. is here in Portland and um, Forest Avenue Press 
So there's a lot of groups in, in the city that would promote that writing community by hosting readings or uh, by having classes. And I have been in two amazing writing groups that one writing group lasted about 10 years. Mm. And then after we kind of had internalized and knew what each other was going to say, we kind of like, I don't think we need to re- meet anymore because I already know what you're going to say. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But we met in a class. And now my current writing group also, uh, we were taking a class called Write a Novel in 10 Weeks. And the instructor was immediately telling us, you're not going to write a novel in 10 weeks. I just have to put that title in the class. So we met for 10 weeks. And at the end of 10 weeks, a couple of us looked around and were like, I think we should keep this going. And so six of us have been meeting ever since. And we replicated kind of the format of the class that we were taking. And it's been six or seven years now, wow. all through the pandemic and everything. So, so you, uh, got, you guys had just had that kind of chemistry in the together. You, you felt yeah. that kind of connection. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. We've had some births. We've had some deaths. So we, you become close friends and, and it's kind of like an extended family almost. Now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's phenomenal. Uh, oh my gosh. That's a great. Thing to hear. So the writing groups that you are, uh, there's more than one, obviously. And how frequently do you do you get together with those people? Well, we've been meeting every two weeks was kind of our rhythm. We've pushed it up to meeting every week, but not doing critique every week. Sometimes we'll meet just to do, we call it a write-in. Well, we'll we will just gather, we'll bring our laptops and our journals, we'll meet at a brew pub and and just write instead of actually critiquing each other's work. So the critique sessions have been a little more challenging because of COVID. They've been a little more challenging since we just had one of our members move to Pennsylvania. So, yeah, but it's one of those things where, you know, if we're, if we're there and you just need to have people in the room listening to you and, and telling you, you're not crazy. That's, yeah, That's enough to keep going seriously. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like a support group. Are all of them writing short stories or some of them working on novels? Well, since we started in a novel class, we, we mostly have been working on each other's novels. But I've brought short stories into the group now and then. And a couple other people have also brought short stories into the group. Uh, but mostly the focus has been, has been on getting these beasts, these novels, getting mm-hmm. these done getting these out there. We've also done some critique where we've, um, some people have brought in some grant applications to critique. Mm. We've practiced, we've practiced some novel pitches uh, to each other, which has been helpful. And then another thing we did, this was amazing. Uh, You know, when you do a pitch like to an agent, they'll often ask for the synopsis and many writers just struggle. I don't know. I spent, you know, I wrote these 400 pages, but I don't know how to summarize it. So what we did is we wrote a synopsis of each other's work and uh, traded those back and forth. And it was incredibly illuminating Mm. to hear a third party summarize one's work. It was just super nice thing to do to each other. That's the thing too. With this novel, not only do I want to get it published, but I feel like this isn't just about me anymore. I got these five other people who have read literally the entire thing, probably more than once. Mm. And when you add up their comments, they just go into the thousands. They've put so much time in this 
if I don't get this thing published, I'm doing them a disservice. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, so, that's so, the way I feel. yeah, no, that's, that's an amazing thing to hear. These groups are so powerful, you know, in their influence and their reach in your life that, that you actually kind of feel beholden to these other writers yeah. in the group. And that, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, that, you know, that's got to help motivate you too, in ways that if you were just, you know, writing in isolation and you would, right. that would make the work so much harder. Well, that's that thing I was telling you about, like, sometimes writing is solitary, sometimes it's communal, and you really need both of those forms of energy. So let's talk about the novel, since you've gotten us onto that. Give us a little bit of information about, you know, where you are in the process and what you're hoping for with it. Well, my novel is a little bit of a departure, because as you know, I've mostly been writing short stories. And... I just wanted to do something new. I wanted to, I felt like I had a bigger story that I wanted to tell. Um, it's a noir, it's a mm. mystery noir. And this is not a genre I, I read a lot. I definitely watch a lot of movies in this mm. genre. But when I was at the AWP conference in Minneapolis on the very last day, the very last hour, Deep in the bottom of the, the Minneapolis Convention Center, there was this little panel called Is Noir Actually Literary Fiction? It's earned a place. Yeah, these four presenters started talking about, well, what makes literary work? It, uh, you know, it, a certain aesthetic, an eye for your setting, and noir is all about setting. Oh, my gosh. And then uh, what else is happening in noir? It's about characters having to make difficult decisions, and that's what makes interesting literary writing. Um, a lot. And another key thing about noir is that the characters often are their own worst enemy, and um, you can just run with, oh, God, look at all the great books where the main characters are their own worst enemy. <laughs> you could just go on and on. And so they're just like, hello, this is this is literary. And then they were just, I was writing names down like mad because they were throwing out all these amazing writers who already are doing literary levels of noir. And I walked out of that conference so energized. I said, I know how to tell this story that I want to tell. And then, oh, after AWP, all the conferencing, everything shifts off site. Everything shifts to like these parties and readings. And, and I'm walking down the main street in Minneapolis and I see the four presenters sitting there at a table, drinking their beers, <laughs> celebrating their successful panel. I walked right up to him and said, that was the best panel. <laughs> so anyway, the long and the short, I did email one later and reach out to her. Mm. But um, the long and the short is the story that I'm telling is about, it's set in 1980s Los Angeles. And it is a time of amazing transition here in the U.S. Now, a lot of people think about the 80s. They think about the big hair. That's the first thing people think about. <laughs> and, okay. the shoulder, and the shoulder pads, right? Shoulder pads, yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, no, hold on a second. I was alive in the, I went to college in the 1980s. So I can tell you before the big hair and the shoulder pads, there was a very conservative flash in the, in the 1980s. It was the Reagan era. It was preppy. It was, remember, do you remember the eyes oh, on shirts? Oh, I do. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a little older than you. So I have a very, very clear memory of all of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so my story is set and during that early 80s, Los Angeles was central. There was a huge Japan phobia at the time. You know, it's one of those ironies. They, they thought Japan was going to take over the world. And at the same time, we were devouring 
Japanese audio products like the Sony Walkman mm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so my main character is a Japanese American woman who is an interpreter for one of these Japanese companies. And she hears a conversation she should not have heard. And in a classic noir, instead of getting out of the situation, she tries to solve it herself. And her solutions only drag her deeper, deeper into this morass. There's cocaine in the novel because 1980s Los Angeles. Mm. There's intrigue. There's love. There's all of those different things. There's some cultural shifts between Japan and the United States. I went to high school here in Portland, Oregon. In the 1980s, my high school was about a third, third generation Asian students. And so, I mean, I, I got my Eagle Scout Award with this friend of mine, Gary Okamoto, you know, and so there's a it's I saw third generation Asian students growing up and how they had to navigate and code switch between Chinese culture and American culture or Japanese culture and American culture. They had to do that code switching all the time. And the other great thing, or not great, is actually kind of ghastly, but one of the other intriguing things about that era is um, at that time, the 80s is when they were finally talking about doing some reconciliation and reparations for Japanese internment. I knew all about Japanese internment because my parents made sure I knew about that kind of stuff, but it was never discussed. It was never discussed at my school. The Japanese American kids at my school never brought it up, even though their parents almost certainly had been forced into those camps. So that issue comes up in the story as well. Mm. Wow. And that, I'm sure gave you an enormous amount of historical material to work with. It sounds like you're, you've kind of woven that part of American history into this story of intrigue, the richness of that kind of a tapestry. Right. You know, you don't get that. And what you think of as typically as noir kind of writing, you know, it's, right. it's very kind of stark and shallow, but that what you're doing sounds like it's a whole different kind of approach to it. So, yeah, well, one of the things that happens in noir, especially noir set in Los Angeles, is the climax scene often ends up out in the desert. <laughs> this is yeah. almost a trope. You almost it's almost obligatory. <laughs> yeah. And, and and there is a scene in my in towards the end of my novel where they're out in the desert and the mother is triggered. She's she doesn't like being out in the desert because she remembers the last time she was out in the desert. It was in 1942, and she's not keen to be have to be out there again. I mean, I wish I could just go to Amazon right now and purchase this novel because <laughs> I am I am so excited by what you're describing. And you know, it, this is kind of a good way to get into some of your stories. In my notes, I'm reading your stories and I'm thinking, I am I'm a very big noir fan too. I mean, I, I'm a film fanatic and and noir in particular, I am very drawn to. And I, I surprised, I've been actually watching a lot of noir recently. So it, these images are like always floating through my head. So when I'm reading your stories, you know, when I've been reading your stories, it's tapping into all of that imagery that I'm carrying around with me. And mm -hmm. there's a couple of stories that I, I'd like to talk about because they really strike me as being like a literary version of noir. One of them is A House Call. Uh, and the other one is Ronnie Jackson and the Rainbow Lights. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> so, so let's talk about those. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, you know, no. because you have such an enormous body of work. Ronnie Jackson is from your most recent collection, 
uh, which we should say is Stories of the New West, which is published by Mint Hill Books, which is a Main Street rag imprint. Is that, am I getting that right? Yes, that is correct. Getting back to the story, that story is so atmospheric. I mean, it's set at night and the setting is like a, a large church that has many, you know, kind of private areas. It's like a huge, almost campus complex uh, mm-hmm. of a church where this party is occurring, a graduation party for the um, the class of the daughter of the protagonist. Yeah. And he gets pulled into this kind of private party because he's given some money. He obviously is a person of some wealth <laughs> and he's given the church some money in support of the program. He's given entree into this other hidden part where this other party is going on. And the story goes from being pretty realistic to almost kind of like a fever dream where yeah, all yeah. of a sudden, you know, it, it takes on this almost nightmarish quality. I should also say that it's, you know, there's a lot of kind of interior monologue stuff happening when I read a story like this, I just wonder, was there like a, a single thing that kind of set this off in your mind? Or was it something that you were kind of brewing on, you know, over a long period of time? Well, uh, that story, if there's any grain of, or, or any germinal for that story, it's, I remember going to a party and there's a number of my high school buddies that have kids the same age as my kids. So I run into these folks that Maybe a, maybe the school has like their annual fundraiser party or something like that. And I asked them about a bully that I remembered. I clearly remembered this particular bully and no one else could remember him. And I thought that's just absolutely impossible. You can't possibly have forgotten who this guy was. How I'm do you forget a bully? I mean, exactly. <laughs> he, he tormented us. We all We were all tormented by him. And did they just completely erase the memory or are they, was there some underhanded thing that got rid of the bully? Because I will tell you, after the bully made living hell for everyone, mysteriously, the bully just disappeared. And I thought, did were there some machinations that made the bully disappear that we didn't know about? So I hear, there's the germinal of the story. Mm. Uh, but that story went through so many rewrites, was not working. I'm not just talking revision. I had to rewrite it from scratch. Wow. And finally, I thought, okay, I need help. I need structure. I, when I was in my MFA program, one of the teachers he used to yell at us. He used to say, seize form, you know, find, you know, what you're reading, study what you're reading. Maybe there's some forms there you can use in your own writing. And I thought, okay, what's a good party story? I need a good party story. And I thought, oh, okay, I know. Edgar Allan Poe, The Mask of the Red Death. Oh, yeah. It's one of the all time. And so I studied that story. I actually rewrote it by hand. I made notes. I I kept careful track of the arc of that story. And so my story is completely different. However, if you line them up, you will see they have a very similar arc in terms of their structure. Um, That's so, I mean, that I, that came to mind when I was reading that, and I, you know, and it's not in any obvious way, but but just, right. the, you know, the feeling that you get when you read Mask of the Red Death, it was absolutely the same type of emotional response to this story. Yeah. Yeah, so, so they keep going in this Mask of the Red Death, they go through room after room after room, and you're supposed to feel more on the inside, more, more welcome into this elite 
community. But what they don't know is that the darkness, the the red death is going with them, mm-hmm. even though they feel safer and safer and safer. And the story that I wrote, this dirty little secret about a bully who mysteriously disappeared goes with them deeper and deeper and they can't get away from it. They cannot get away from that until the, the protagonist finally loses it and accuses them of having done something to get rid of this bully. I can't remember exactly. I think they kick him out of the party. I'm just thinking the, about the image of this red glass window that plays yeah. a major role in the story. It's so thick that you can't really, you only see shadows behind it. And he's starting to hallucinate. I mean, he's, he has kind of like a, a mini breakdown <laughs> during the story yes. where he kind of imagines that this bully is on the other side of, I mean, that that image was so powerful. The way you you brought it back a few times in the story in ways that mm-hmm. kept building the the suspense and you know the sense of dread in this character's mind. I'm just so curious about that red glass window. What did you see that there was potential in making something out of that that you could kind of thread throughout the story? Well, um, I think I needed the window as a plot device a mechanism in order for in order to be able to sell some surreal elements mm. because the red thick window it's like a stained glass window but like you said it's just got this thick red opacity to it and that gave me a way to have the character's mental deterioration express it in a physical way mm. and the, also since it's a window gave me a way to talk about who's on the inside and who's on the outside. Mm. And so that all of the people, all the parents and all the students at this graduation party are on the inside, but there's an outside. And this main character is ultimately, he sees what's on the outside and that's ultimately where he belongs. Mm. He's the only one who does belong there. Uh, But the window is the vehicle or it's a it's a symbol a metaphor and i thought it works in the story because you know churches have a lot of stained glass yeah i mean it, it is it just works so beautifully and you know when you think about a church and the physical structure of a church and the, the mystery of a church and you know yes. i mean it, there's mystery the minute you walk into a church there's a sense of mystery that's been calculated in the creation of the space uh that's the intention but you take that and then you kind of deepen the mystery by creating you know these kind of maze like parts of the church and then you know this window just becomes this symbol of like you said the 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 outside world and this very protected insular world where all hell seems to be breaking loose. It's, yes. that's the, the irony is that all hell is breaking right. loose inside of a church. Since you, you know, kind of looking back at the story after having written this noir literary fiction, did you have that in mind that it, this would be noir when you were writing it? Or do you see it as a noir piece now looking back at it? Now that you pointed out, I do see it. But at the time, I wasn't thinking noir when I wrote it. Because I guess one thing about noir that isn't in that story, a lot of noir has what do they call it the hard-boiled dialogue yes the, <laughs> um, the kind of cynical punchy and and that particular story has more of a uh, highfalutin syntax mm. I mean I, I wrote it after immersing myself in an Edgar Allan Poe deep dive and so mm. you you know 
you can't come away from an Ed Corral and Poe deep dive without having certainly more um, loftier syntax. Yes. And so for me, that particular story, I don't know if the syntax quite qualifies it as as a noir, but it definitely involves a narrator who is kind of dealing with problems of his own devices. And another thing that's a key noir, this is absolutely key. According to this panel I went to, Mm. a crime fiction is about someone who breaks the rules. And a noir is about someone who breaks the unwritten rules. Mm. And I thought, oh, that is a beautiful distinction to have. Uh, you know, you watch a show like Will on Order, it's about people who break the rules, they get caught, end of story. But a noir, and he, the example he gave would be like, he wrote a story about a gangbanger who came out of prison, converted to Jesus and decided he had to reform and save all of his gang buddies, kind of like a 20, 21 Grams, where the mm. Benicio del Toro character decides he's going to come save everyone. That's breaking the unwritten rules. Good. So the story I wrote, the guy is breaking the unwritten rules. He's come back to this party and he's asking about someone you're not supposed to ask about. What happened to Ronnie Jackson? Oh, you're not supposed to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> Ronnie Jackson broke the rules. But if you ask about Ronnie Jackson, you're breaking the unwritten rules. Something happened to him. And we don't talk about that. <laughs> I mean, it's clear that they know who, who Ronnie Jackson was. That just deepens the mystery because they are not going to acknowledge, you know, the existence of Ronnie Jackson to this guy, you know, no matter right. what, no matter how insistent he is. It's funny how one story could bring up so much to talk about. I want to talk about another story, and that story is A House Call, um, mm-hmm. which was, where was that originally published? Do you, do you recall? Um, it was, yes, it was in a literary magazine that specializes in medical-related literature. Oh, There's, yes. It's called Ars Medica. Uh, I think it's out of Canada. There's several literary magazines. The Healing Muse is another one. And um, they're great literary magazines, but the focus has to be somehow related to the medical field, mental health, uh, illness, healing, injury, recovery, all of that kind of stuff. This is the beauty of these, you know, the world of literary journals and magazines. In the case of Ars Medica and these other Mm -hmm. journals that you mentioned where, you know, they want to have fiction writers explore this world in a way that can bring enlightenment on a very different level than just you know reading medical journals, obviously. Right. Uh, and I love that cross-pollination when writers are given this kind of a forum to write for because amazing things come out of it. Oh, it also, it's a cross-pollination because there are benefits in this for people who work in medicine. Uh, I'm hearing like there are nurses who have formed writing groups. Ah. And and although their intention wasn't to start as a writer who's writing about medical things, they're medical folks who are discovering how writing can help help them process, help them heal, all of that kind of stuff. See, these are the things that I want this podcast to to illuminate. You know the the reach of fiction and and the short story form. I mean, the things that can be done with this form, with this particular art form are, are limitless. And this is just mm-hmm. a perfect example of how, you know, it can be used to actually be used to help people to heal them. Right. Uh, you know, these are things that I don't think people think about often 
you know, when they're immersed in, in writing things or people who, who read stories or, you know, they're not generally thinking in this realm of, you know, the possible, the possibilities of, of fiction. So, yeah. So, so getting back to the story, a house call, this is set in a, in an earlier time, the doctor in the story who is uh, it's written in the first person and he's, you know, talking about this particular experience that he's had working for a church in a foreign country, probably during a war, maybe it's World War II. It's kind of vague, which is, you know, I think helps the story Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. He is brought to uh, the home of a girl whose brother, it turns out, has smallpox. It's one of these stories that that there are so has so many layers to it. Uh, I mean, it starts out with the main characters talking about a a card trick that he is attempting. And so you get into the mind and the the origins of this character through this card trick that he is having difficulty with. And you learn about his his own personal history and his relationship with his father, who was also a doctor, who was not, we find out later, the best doctor, <laughs> you know, he, right. uh, but, he, you know, he, he brought his son along with him and taught him, you know, these things like card tricks. I mean, a, a really another mysterious kind of character who comes up in the story and we see the kind of influence that he's had on the, the main character of the story. And I don't know if I'm doing any kind of justice, but I, uh, I I would love it if you could just tell us a little bit about the way that you got into that story and decided to go, you know, in that particular direction with it. It said it in an earlier time and just, yeah, tell us a little bit about the origins of that story. Well, this story, I'm not sure I remember the exact origins because uh, I wrote this way back in the 2000s, but I do remember that this story had to be rewritten from scratch multiple times. I Mm. hate it when that happens. Mm. I like to think that I have revisions that are based on quality work that I can tinker with, but this was a story that I categorically had to rewrite from scratch. I'm just curious, was that your decision or, or did you have people who, who were going to publish this, who, who asked you to to make changes? Where did that come from that you needed to rewrite it in such? Um, I, I had sent it out several times to literary magazines. And this was back before email. So it was paper, paper stamps and return mm. envelopes. And, yeah. the, and the story was not getting any traction anywhere. And um, in order to fix the story, I had to just, just take it from scratch. Um, the other thing that I did, which was kind of significant, is the story involves the narrator. His father is a doctor and even his grandfather is a doctor. And when I originally had the story there was just the one character and all of his problems and his card tricks and his doctoring but when i split it into three people who were doctors and created that sense of family lineage first of all it gave me more stakes that the guy had to carry a burden but also i could split the different aspects of his personality into those three characters the grandfather who i think is more confident as a doctor then there's the father who struggles with confidence and even competence, <laughs> and then himself. So, uh, and then, then using the card tricks as a motif, that kind of came. I remember when I was in college, we read there's a story by um, Kafka called A Country Doctor, where there's a doctor who goes out and to help serve a patient. 
and ends up doing just a bunch of magic hocus pocus stuff. And I didn't understand the story, but the professor helped us understand mm-hmm. <laughs> that from the from the primitive peasants' point of view, the science that the doctor was doing was just more hocus pocus. Huh. It was magic to them. It was magic. What you take out a little vial and, and you pour a little liquid. That's it. Must be magic liquid. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. And and um. You take that magic instrument and you put it in your ears and then you place the tube up against the person's chest. Are you listening to, you know, they, they thought it was magic. Mm. And so I thought, well, I could do that with the cards because maybe in this, in this village where this doctor is, this war zone where he's working, maybe the, the local villagers have the same perception of Western medicine. It's, it's no better than a card trick. And uh, I think in the story, they even allude, he has like a book. I think he has a book of of cures. Yes. And, and to them, it's, it's nothing more than like like a religious text, a Bible. Yes, it's, and it, and it's physically massive. You describe yeah. it as being this tome, which, you know, falls to the floor in one moment when he's at the, this yeah. uh, girl's home with the, where her brother is in bed. You know, it makes a huge sound when it hits the floor. Right. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, that that physical object, there was wonder and you know around that thing, and then you know it took on a life of its own even in that moment. So yeah, it's a very cinematic kind of story. Uh, I, I mean, I really I would love to see somebody you you know adapt it into a film because you know <laughs> it, it it could you know it just has that in my mind that kind of potential. Um, and it's thrilling to read a story like that and be, get that excited. As I say often, I, I, I'm reading this on a granular level, you know, differently than many people would. But I'm so fascinated by how writers like you put this all together into this package. And you make it seem effortless, but obviously you put more effort into it than you ever thought you would have to, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is the other side of that, you know, that, right. that's so interesting that people who read these stories who don't write, I think it's really helpful for them to hear what it right. took you to make that what it turned out to be, which I think is just a small masterpiece. So <laughs> yeah, if, if you try to quantify that, we're, we're not getting rich doing this. We're almost out of time. Before we we end the hour, the one other thing that I really wanted to ask you about is writing from a woman's point of view, which oh, yes. um, always curious when male writers find that they can do that, you know, and be successful writing in a woman's point of view in a convincing way. Well, it's interesting that you you spotted that because um, that's something that people have spotted before. My first collection of stories, most of them are written from a main character who's a woman's point of view. And the second collection of stories is maybe about half and half. Uh, This third collection, I think it's about two thirds from a male point of view. Uh, But for me, I think this expresses a certain evolution for me, because as I said, when I was telling you about my life, I felt like there was a lot of things in my life I was leaving. Mm. I was leaving behind and things maybe I wasn't comfortable with. And for me, at a certain point writing, if the main character was male, I got all of these massive blind spots being male myself huh. that I just wrote as a matter of course. 
and they weren't interesting. They, I got hung up on my own issues as opposed to the character's issues. I couldn't separate them. But if I projected outward into a sense of otherness, I was able, it freed me up to let the characters be themselves. So a lot of my stories, the main character is a woman. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting with the newest collection, maybe I'm finally sort of coming home to myself because there are more stories with male main characters. Uh, the a, a woman who interviewed me for this newest collection, she even asked me about, there's a lot of these stories that are about fathers and sons. And I thought, well, that's very interesting because maybe that was one of the things I, I did. I never noticed that before. Now that you mention it, I think you're right. Maybe I'm finally sort of coming home to be able to deal with that aspect of life. Maybe I've been running from it before and now mm. I'm fine. In fact, the story that you're going to read is a father-son story yes. in many ways. Yeah. Uh, and you are a father? I have a stepdaughter and a son. And a son. So you have been a son to a father. You are a father to a mm -hmm. son. So you. it makes sense that all of this stuff is kind of coming home to roost right. now <laughs> and and you're right. finding there's a, an impulse in you to write about it um exactly and, and yeah the first story in stories of the new west which we which we didn't talk about but uh, dinosaur bones which you know I, I had wanted to talk about this is the the frustrating thing i i could spend a week talking <laughs> about these stories with you evan but dinosaur bones is a story a fa another father son it's a father son yeah. Um, you know, and the father is is sort of a, a misfitty type. Uh, I'm going to just use this as an opportunity to say, since we're running out of time, that people really need to pick up a copy of Stories of the New West uh, <laughs> because they'll want to read, you know, about all these things we're talking about, these relationships between fathers and sons. You know, and the other thing that I had wanted to talk to you about was Catholicism, because that is, I think, something that you kind of explore your relationship with faith in these stories. Uh, would that be a fair assessment, do you think? Um, I, It's there. I, I'm not Catholic or anything. Uh, oh, my, you're not? Okay. No, but my, my dad's family is Episcopalian, which kind of- Well, yes. Yeah, it is. It, there are a lot of similarities. Right. And my, my mom, well, my grandparents were Presbyterian missionaries in China. Mm. And so I've got a lot of interesting stories from that aspect of my mom's life. But no, I was not particularly raised in a religious household. I have two older brothers with some disabilities. And my mom just was like, prayer doesn't work. My mm. grandpa used to say, you just pray the two brothers, they'll get better. They'll get better. And my mom was just like, nope, wow. that doesn't work. Wow. And wow. that was the end of that. Uh, that's incredible. I mean, that's... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, your, your mom was obviously a very uh, pragmatic thinker, which, you know, probably right. for her for her time and in her circumstances was was unusual, I would think. But well, yeah, to be the to be the oldest daughter of the Presbyterian minister in town and the homecoming queen and all of that. And then as an adult, she makes her own decision that, you know what, I'm I'm not buying it anymore. Mm. not buying it and do you feel that some of that got passed down to you <laughs> <laughs> yeah i would have to say so yeah wow uh well you you are a fascinating person evan i want to thank you so much yeah. for taking time out of your busy life 
Thank you so much. Well, thank you as well for having me. That's incredibly generous of you. What you're doing here is, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to just be a log roller here, but you have created a community that has uh, expanded where I feel like I'm finding out about new writers and often very small press writers too. And so we love the amplification that you're giving us. Well, it, it's the, the dream is slowly becoming a reality, which is an unbelievable experience to be having, uh, to, to be able to watch it kind of unfold in real time. <clears throat> you just have no idea what's going to become of something that starts out as a, right. as a concept, a dream in your head. To see things happening like this is just, it's all just a huge gift. And I, I thank you for being one of the people who's adding to the beauty and the wonder of my life. Uh, I'm going to say goodbye for now. All right, Evan? Uh -huh. Goodbye. You can find links to Evan's stories at his website, evanmorganwilliams.com. You'll also find links to booksellers where you can purchase a copy of one of his or all of his collections. And now we'll move on to the short story, A House Call, originally published in Ars Medica. So here it is, A House Call by Evan Morgan Williams. I hear a knock at the back door of the priory. A single knock. Just as I'm perfecting a new sleight of hand with my waxed maverick cards, the Cardini single, another trick I'll never use. I'm startled by the knock, but do I flinch? Hell no. I turn down the lamp. The nurses and the translator are sleeping in the next room, and I lay my cards on the fine teak table the prior left in the evacuation. Overhead, fat raindrops rattle the tin roof as palm trees loosen their rain, and I think of my grandpa's empty old house with a chestnut tree over the porch. I imagine my dad sitting there, dazzling me with his card tricks, his shaky hands, the rain. Now he's sold the place to pay his debts. That's what he said in his last letter. I have no place to go home. The person knocks on the door again. I stuff my deck of playing cards in the pocket of my shirt. My dad said cards were for indolent rogues, but he always winked and showed me a new trick. He kept a deck of cards in his doctor bag. You know, a knock during the day is nothing. A mother bringing her son for an exam. Listen to the boy's breath, do a little hocus-pocus with your nickel-plated gadgets. Dispense a few aspirin. Sometimes the knock is a patient bearing eggs or cheese, but at night a knock is always bad. I sleep in my raincoat. The nurses are not willing to leave the abbey, and it falls to me to run through the rain and stumble in the mud toward who knows what. I set a broken arm here. I watch malaria back away from a hut there. I've cradled a wailing baby and sung lullabies my mom must have sung to me. I've held a cup to the mouth of a dying partisan as he cried out in Portuguese for the Blessed Virgin. I never can tell which side of the fight these guys are on, which color is which, but I do know when life has faded from warm to cold. In the morning I often lose my way back to the abbey, footprints erased by rain. The knock persists and I open the door. A pretty girl drips rain on the porch. She uses her fingers to comb the rain from her hair, which is so long it hangs to her ankles. She is wearing a man's loose shirt. 
The girl has pockmarks on her face, scars tight and shiny like the skin on pudding. That's what salves and prayer get you. But she is pretty, especially as she combs her hair, separating each strand fine as flax. I've seen farmhouses without mirrors. The girl might not know how pretty she is. I offer her a chair at the teak table, and I pour two cups of tea. She coils her hair in her lap and sits. She does not take the tea. She stands. She tugs my hand. Shit. Please, my brother hurts badly. I am a doctor, and I am proud to say my father was a doctor, as was his father before him, and his father too. One of my ancestors was a Cherokee healer named Leaves. The story goes that his herbs and roots poisoned the wife of a Tennessee judge, and he fled to California and changed his name to Jones to throw off the law. That's what I was told. I believed he was without honor, but when I was ten my dad told me there was more to the story of Leaves. He said the judge's wife had a bloody gurgle in her lungs which did not respond to the balms Leaves rubbed on her chest. She begged for something to end her pain, and when she clutched Leaves' wrist, he understood what she was asking. He gave her something all right. My dad said Leaves never practiced medicine again. I thought about that story. I imagined the woman's fingers digging deep into my own wrist. I could not have gone through with it. Nevertheless, I became proud of the story and what it said about my family. A little mercy in this world was a good thing. I knew I would become a doctor. The road is mud. I feel my boots sink in and stick. I hold the girl's hand and let her guide me to the village. You can cure him? Of course I can. I'm a doctor. No point in worrying the girl. We still have an hour of walking. If death is taking shape on his face, I don't want to know about it yet. I want the girl to sing me a song in her fluttery dialect. She is so skinny, and that long, loose shirt is like a dress, and her hair swings around her ankles. There is something bulging under her shirt, but in the rainy season you see that everywhere. A satchel of food, a bandana in green or red. You hope it's not a gun. Maybe it's a set of papers. You can still move around the countryside pretty easily if you have papers. If you are bringing help, and especially if you come with the cross. The girl leads me past hamlets we've inoculated against smallpox. It is magic. A bloody jab in the arm keeps you safe. That's good Catholic magic and blood. We are doing good work, and it will make for good stories some day. The villagers insist on paying us, and I take what they offer. Fresh fruit, a bottle of honey wine. But you have to be careful. These are not modest gifts, and not intended that way. The parish priests in their rags scowl at you. What would this girl give to me? Is she a partisan? Am I in trouble? What are the colors on her bandana? Blood is the common color everyone shares. I grip her hand tighter. It is too dark to see. My thumb slides across the pockmarks on the back of her hand. My grandpa used to let me hold his gold pocket watch, fat as an oyster, with a caduceus engraved on the lid and a distilled version of the Hippocratic Oath on the reverse. Refuse no one 
and do no harm. During Prohibition, he had done a thriving business in patent medicines, and the watch was his retirement gift to himself. With a flourish of one hand, he could open the lid, set the watch hands, wind the spring, and click it shut. A surgeon's dexterity, or a huckster's. He handed down the watch to my dad, and my dad promised that if I went to medical school, he would give the watch to me. By the time I showed an inclination, my dad had gotten into some trouble and pawned the watch to pay a debt. It was only a watch, I guess. We reach the hamlet. We enter a tin shack. Everyone is wearing a bandana over the face. And that would be enough to set me on edge, but their muffled voices greet me courteously. They offer me a seat and a cup of honey wine. Everyone is introduced. Catholic ornaments lean out from the wall. Eyes glance at my little black bag of spells. I show them my shiny American tools, my Portuguese dictionary, a rosary, and with these things we measure the distance from there to here. My hands shake a little. Their eyes follow. If I could juggle my instruments like a parlor trick, it would come off well. Something slips from my bag with a thud. It's my dad's book of cures. They gave it to him at the end of medical school. Use this and don't come back. Rusty copper darts mark the pages he considered important. Is that a Bible? Sure it is. I wonder about the masks. Are they trying to protect themselves from a germ? Maybe they're partisans? I'm not supposed to care. The church says we move freely because we don't care. I think of the pockmarks on the girl's face. Tell them it does no good. What? The masks, they do no good against variola. Maybe they don't want you to know who they are. Why don't you wear one on your face? This isn't my face. Sorry. Nothing. Where's your priest? Gone. I set down my cup of honey wine. I drank too much, but my hands are steady as iron. I'm ready. The girl takes my hand. My father was in the war. Fresh out of medical school, he was sent to Italy. He was stationed in field hospitals at Anzio and Naples when it was really bad. He never spoke of it, but he must have felt helpless. I imagine that if a guy was hurting, my dad gave him a jab of morphine, fucked the dosage, and if someone was bleeding, he stuck his hand on the hole and tried to hold back the blood oozing between his fingers. He picked shards of shrapnel like seeds from the flesh of a pomegranate. He wrapped gunshot wounds that leaked like wet sand along a riverbank. With his fingers pinching off arteries, he stopped a man's dying even as the man begged him to help it along. He must have known when a soldier's life was out of his hands, and sometimes he just stood over a dying man and read aloud from his book of cures. I don't know. He learned how to play cards in the army. He learned how to hustle. It's just that whatever he learned, he didn't learn it very well. In the back of the hut, the boy lies on a cot, beside which stands a picture of the Virgin, a crucifix, an incense tray, and a jar of cheap syrup whose only effect is to sweeten your tongue. Even in the darkness I can see the boy is hurting, and smallpox is bubbling on his skin, and he will die painfully. I order everyone out of the room, except the girl, 
her pretty face. Too late for her. Please, the girl says in Portuguese, tell him he will not die. Tell him you've seen death and it is not him. Tomorrow he will awaken and wear his skin like clean silk. I cannot help him. I gather my magic bag. We have to quarantine this village. You know, we make a ring around it. Everybody gets the vaccine. Please, he hurts terribly. The girl touches the boy on his forehead. His skin is like scrambled eggs. When I was eleven years old, I came down with whooping cough. The rattle was in my chest. My father came into my room with a steaming bowl, a remedy he said was handed down from leaves. I didn't like the sound of that. He opened his black bag and took out his thick, meaty book of cures, and he held the book over my chest and read from it as though incanting spells. He rubbed the remedy onto my chest. I closed my eyes and concentrated on my breathing, doing my best to focus on each breath in spite of the mumbo-jumbo uttered over me. I told myself I got better because I was strong. Still, I was quarantined out of school for two months, and to pass the time, my father taught me more card tricks. The bedazzler, the jack-in-the-bedroom, five aces. Even then, his hands had begun to shake. My hands smelled sweet, like cigar box wood. The boy's skin is a bubbling stew. I pull back the girl's hands. He is my patient now. I lay out his limbs so the sores are not touching. I give him water. I sing lullabies. We pray. The girl slides the boy's rosary beads, and you can hear the steady click-click of the beads through her fingers. I want to go home. I am twenty-six, and I want to go home. I don't want to consider anyone's pain any more, but there's nothing to go home to. I take out my deck of cards. Pick a card. What are you doing? The girl frowns. Just tell him to pick a card. The girl takes a card and shows it to the boy. I place the card back in the deck, shuffle. I split the deck in two. Is this your card? He nods. It's the wrong card. I, I did the trick just right. He doesn't understand. Undeterred, I do the Mongolian clock and Schmidt's magic ace. It's a real show. The pretty girl watches me doing the tricks, and her face wrinkles up to where the pockmarks are like kneaded bread, and she's not pretty at all. Then her face relaxes, and she begins to understand. She leaves the room. I finish off, dig your own hole, put the cards in the chest pocket of my shirt. I pick up my coat. You know what my father told me? All morning we were sitting on the porch near the sound of rain. I was doing a trick called Gypsy's Bluff. I must have been about fourteen. My father had been out all night, some lady with cancer. I imagined my father's fat book of cures suspended helplessly above her. Now his hands had become too shaky to play cards. I was not in a hurry, and I worked with care. The rain was heavy in the trees, and the first chestnut fronds of the season were snapping loose and dropping from the weight of the rain. My father said, You've got good hands. Yeah? Do you know why you'll need those hands? So I can be a doctor? Do you know someday what you will have to do with your hands? No. 
with a pillow and your own goddamn hands. I don't understand. The porch was perched too high, and my father stepped off the porch and into the yard as though stepping off the edge of a raft and into the sea. The yellow chestnut fronds were piling on the lawn, glistening with rain, and he waded through them and kicked them around. Standing in the rain outside the hut, I do not wear my coat. I want to feel something, the wet, warm night air on my arms. The cards are tugging on the chest pocket of my shirt. In two years I have learned four species of crickets by their sounds, and when they fall silent I listen to the beating of my heart. I become aware of my skin against the cold, and I wish for my coat, but it is gone. I left my coat behind, wadded in a ball beside the boy's cot. Morning blues the sky. I hear the earliest birds. I need to get back to the abbey. This month was supposed to be the end of the campaign. A few of the nurses are entering a holy order, but most of them are already talking about boys waiting for them back home. They gaggle about summer dresses in the latest American magazines, and they elbow for space in front of the priory's only mirror. They won't want to hear about this one. The girl comes out of the hut and squats beside me, her hair in a coil. I'm very sorry, I say. We have to quarantine the village. You cannot do this. Everyone will flee anyway. She stands and moves in front of me. We are not partisans. We are with the church. All we care about is the virus. She steps closer. I am so sorry. From beneath her shirt, she pulls out a small pistol, and before I can move, she aims her steady hand and fires. The bullet knocks me on my back, but I am alive. The girl is screaming. She kneels next to me. Her hair hangs in my face. It piles on the ground. It tangles in her hands, tangles in mine, everywhere. Later I find that the bullet has struck my deck of cards, and I thought those things would never be useful. I try to roll away, but I'm too stunned to move. My breath is a gasp. Holy Fuck. I am so sorry. Mother Mary, it is a miracle. I touch the girl's pockmarked face. She is so pretty. It is a miracle. I am so sorry. She looks down. She crosses herself. Mother Mary. Mother Mary. She puts her hands on my chest and crosses me. My own hands shake too much. I remember the night my grandpa fell off the tall porch. He was laughing at a joke, and he tipped his chair back and went over. He hit his head badly, and I set him in his chair and waited for my dad. He never did come home that night, and it was I who picked the pebbles from my grandpa's forehead. I daubed at the blood and the crust of pearly fluid. I threaded a needle, and I sewed my first stitches at an age when other boys were tightening the knots on their baseball gloves to play catch with their dads. I never played catch with my dad. In every way, he was a failure. I don't blame him for this. I have said it before. A little mercy in this world is a good thing. I am lying in the hut. The girl is sitting next to me and holding my hand. The boy's body is gone. The girl lights a candle beside the virgin. Sing for me. I lie back and close my eyes. Fuck. Sing for me. I don't. We don't sing right now. 
Then tell me the happiest story you know. My family doesn't have any happy stories. Listen, if we tell a story, it's only to get rid of it. We tell a story to put it away, far, far away. Then I will tell you a story about my family. There was a man. His name was Leaves. Thank you, Evan, for allowing us to read that magical, mystical story. Well, that's the end of the episode. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when our guest author will be Pamela Painter. The music you hear at the beginning of each episode is by C.S. Fuqua, and the closing music is by Matt Hawkins. You can find out more about their music from a link on our homepage at shortstorytoday.com. You've been listening to Short Story Today, where we celebrate short stories and the authors who write them. Across the bridge of stories, I'll find you. Hold your tongue, boy.